Today on Regionally Speaking. Global oil and gas prices have been rising sharply since 2021 as economies worldwide recovered from the coronavirus pandemic and demand for energy surged. So we bring back our conversation with Valparaiso University Associate Professor of Accounting, Anton Lewis. He shared his take on how alternative energy can save the world trillions. He also offered the financial impact of the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth. But up first, with cold weather heading our way, we will all face higher utility bills. So we speak with Alexius Barber, the Public Affairs and Economic Development Manager for NIPSCO. She'll discuss the resources that are available to help manage energy consumption costs. All of that's on this edition of Regionally Speaking, After the News. Welcome back to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio, streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org. I'm Dee Dotson. When you step out of your house these days, faced with cooler temperatures, there is no doubt that winter is coming. And with that, as the cold weather begins to move into the region, there may be concerns about seasonal energy bills. So we turn now to Alexius Barber, NIPSCO Public Affairs and Economic Development Manager for Lake County, to talk about the resources that are available to help manage energy consumption and costs, and if needed, obtain financial assistance. Alexius, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. My pleasure, Dee. Thanks for having us. Okay, so Alexius, in my opening, I started with a line from that highly regarded medieval fantasy series, Winter is Coming. I started with that because when you hear that line, it automatically evokes an emotion. And just like the emotion that is evoked when people hear that line, region residents can have a bit of anxiety and, to some degree, concern about the cost to heat their home via an increase of their monthly utility bill because of the cooler weather. But I understand there are resources that are available to help manage costs. Is that correct? Yes, Dee, most definitely. And um, here in NIPSCO, we realize the challenges that can come with the winter and the increase, you know, maybe bills and that kind of thing, more usage. But we do want to help work with the customers to come up with solutions, provide them programs and services that might be able to, you know, alleviate that and kind of offset those expenses. So let's take a look at some of the energy assistance programs that are available for low-income region residents. Can you kind of walk us through those programs? And if there are, can you share any eligibility requirements? Sure. You know, one that I like to start out with is our LIHEAP program, and that's our low-income um, home energy assistance program. And that one is available to households that are below 60% of the state median income. And that program opened on October 1st. And currently, they can either mail in an application for, or they can drop an application off, and there's a several locations that they will be able to go to Northwest Indiana Community Action's website, and they will be able to print out an application and complete that. And um, if there's any questions, they will most definitely be able to stop over at our NIPSCO business office on Broadway at 3222 Broadway, and they can ask questions and drop off their application there as well. And what about customers that may not qualify for any of the assistance programs that you've shared? Are there any other opportunities for assistance? You know, there's several other programs that we can discuss. There is a couple programs for senior citizens, which is called Silver. And there's another program, Serve, which is for our veteran market as well. Those are two of our newer energy assistance programs 
for eligible seniors and veterans. And with those programs, their income, if it's zero to 250% of the federal poverty guidelines, they would qualify for those programs as well. And the benefit is a one-time benefit of $400 per year for those who qualify. We're speaking with Alexius Barber, the NIMSCO Public Affairs and Economic Development Manager for Lake County. So, Alexius, I understand that another resource available is the NIMSCO Hardship Program. Can you please take a moment to share what that is? The NIMSCO Hardship Program is available for customers just outside of the federal poverty guidelines for the LIHEAP program. The NIFSCO Hardship Program, they offer up to a $400 benefit on the gas bill for those that are between 151 and 250% of the federal poverty guidelines. And more information on that program, which will open December 1st, can be found on our website under NIFSCO.com, Income Eligible. And what about NIFSCO customers that prefer to manage their home expenses with a recurring payment that fits into their budget? Are there any options for them? Most definitely. And um, for our flexible uh, payment plans, there is a three-month option and also a six-month option. And for those that are eligible for the LIHEAP program, there is a 12-month option plan that they uh, may qualify for as well. And once again, a lot of this information is on our website. You can always go to NIPSCO.com. But for that one, a quick link would be payment plans. Alexius, you've shared a lot of great information on how to apply for assistance programs, but some of our listening audience may hear the guidelines outlined today and think there are no assistance programs available for them due to exceeding the income eligibility. Would you recommend that they still contact the NIPSCO Customer Care Center? Most definitely, because I think with this menu of program assistance that we have, there's something for everyone. So whether you fall within those guidelines or you're outside those guidelines, whether there is um, an assistance program or payment plan, but there's something that we can most definitely explore to help all of our customers. It sounds like the goal is to work with customers to identify solutions to help them when they need it most. So for more information on bill assistance, where can customers go? There's several ways. Um, one uh, way would be to call, call our customer care center Monday through Friday, and they are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And they can call 1-800-4-NIPSCO and also on our website at nipsco.com. And finally, Alexius, in the time that we have left, in addition to all of the information that you've shared regarding the energy assistance programs that are available for NIPSCO customers to take advantage of, are there any energy efficiency tips that you can share? Most definitely, you know, and those are those are ones that are either no cost or low cost to our customers. So, for instance, they may want to consider setting their thermostat back two to four degrees, and this would help to reduce their bill as well. Also, make sure with their HVAC system that they get a tune-up on the system ahead of time. And having clean filters because that allows the air to flow regularly and not be blocked, and plus the furnace will work more efficient with putting these measures in place. And then we also um, would recommend maybe some caulk from your local big box store where they could caulk around uh, pipes and windows and doors and that kind of thing to keep the draft out. Sometimes we're not aware of the air that escapes that way. So that's something to keep in mind as well. And on our website, there is a lot of tips for our customers and ways to reduce that energy usage. There's a whole line of them out there on our website. Alexius Barber is NIPSCO Public Affairs and Economic Development Manager for Lake County. Alexius, thank you for spending time with us today, sharing information to help NIPSCO customers manage their energy consumptions and costs. 
Thank you so much, Dee. And we would just love for customers, if you have any questions about anything that I share, feel free to stop by if they're in the Gary area to our business office there. They'll be happy to answer any questions they may have. NIPSCO customers experiencing difficulty with paying their bills regardless of their income are encouraged to contact the customer care team Monday through Friday between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. at 1-800-4-NIPSCO. Those looking to quickly find information 24 hours a day, 7 days a week can also visit nipsco.com slash income eligible where you can also take advantage of the new chat feature located at the bottom right hand of the website. For customers who prefer to do business in person, please visit the recently reopened Geary Business Office at 3229 Broadway and take advantage of the same services offered when calling the NIPSCO Customer Care Center. And for more ways to save energy, visit nipsco.com energy tips. According to the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, more than 20 million families in America are behind on their utility bills, and their debt is growing. NIDA represents state directors of the federal government's low-income home energy assistance program. In August, the group released data showing U.S. families have about $16 billion in utility debt, up from $8.1 billion at the end of 2019. The group said the average amount owed rose from about $403 to $792. The federal government expects the price of electricity will continue to rise in 2023, and consumer advocates warn that customer arrears are rising as well. Joining us now to talk about why energy costs are so high in the U.S., as well as why they are even higher in the U.K., is Anton Lewis, Ph.D., an associate professor of accounting at Valparaiso University. Anton, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Dee, and thank you very much for being on the show. So, Anton, you join us from time to time sharing your expertise as an associate professor of accounting, and we speak on a range of topics, including how cost controls through accounting are the key to success in business, but you often share commentary on some of the top stories in the news. In my opening, I shared the NIDA release data in August showing U.S. families have about $16 billion in utility debt. Also in August, the Associated Press had a story on U.K. energy bills, and it opened with this line. A deepening cost of living crisis in Britain is about to get worse. With millions of people expected to pay about 80% more a year on their household energy bills starting in October. Annual energy bills for the average households have already risen by a record 54% so far this year. So, Anton, I know that we're going to spend this hour speaking about a range of topics, but I wanted to start by asking you this question. Why are energy costs so high in the U.S. and why are they even higher in the U.K.? Um, Yes, you're right. Energy costs are a major global problem and it can often feel that it's it's very country uh, centric, but that's just not the truth. One of the reasons that we are experiencing such high energy costs has been the constriction of supply of uh, gas and oil through the Ukraine war. And I think I I might have mentioned bits of that in a previous show. Um, Because of the support that Europe and the United States have given to the Ukrainian government, an embargo, if you like, has been placed uh, on gas 
and oil produced by the uh, Russian state, if you like, which has forced European gas prices on the open market up. And this, of course, has affected different countries in different ways. And so, for example, as we've all seen, uh, when we've gone to the gas pump here in the United States, it's been an unpleasant experience. It's easing off a little now, but it's really affected everything. Um, we've seen that this, if you like, cost-push inflation, this rise in gas prices, often affects companies who have to do something with this increase in their fuel costs. And what they tend to try to do is pass those costs on in higher prices that we as consumers have to pay. And that generally means that the general price level for goods and essentially many things that we buy go up. That's a kind of a definition of inflation, the persistent increase in the price level. And that frankly hits all of us in our pockets. But we've got some other issues lurking around here in the US as well. Um, as inflation increases and prices go up, you can get wage uh, kind of spirals, if you like, in certain costs. And here I'm thinking about mortgages. And so because everybody needs a house, right, um, we are finding that the 30-year uh, mortgage for the United States as a percentage is around about 6%, which is twice the amount it was last year. Yeah. And this is a problematic, yeah? Because uh, 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 as mortgages increase like that, we create a housing bubble. At some point, it will pop, and it might even promote recessionary kind of waves within the U.S. economy. And the Fed is increasing interest rates to combat this. Let me ask you a question with those rising costs. How does, and I'm not sure if you know this, but how does the UK compare to EU neighbors? And again, uh, in some ways, and again, I don't have the figures uh, at my fingertips, but I would say that the UK is in a particularly vulnerable kind of spot. Um, one can argue that the wider economic area that you have, right, the EU, the better you are to be able to work with one another to help suppress prices, put price caps on, uh, to expand growth in one's economy. And don't forget that we left the EU with Brexit. And some of the problems that we have Again, this is my, my, my view, are being exasperated by our inability to jointly fight these um, global cost pressures together with the EU in a unified way. Um, and so that's why, in some ways, I think the UK has it a little harder than others. But I must be clear here, whether you're talking about Spain, whether you're talking about France or Germany or any of the EU countries, everybody is experiencing pain. Just for example, Germany has acute problems, actually, where increasing gas supplies are concerned because it gets the majority of its uh, oil and gas from Russia through a main pipeline, and they are just simply constraining supply to the extent that Germany as a country is looking at attempting to stockpile gas and oil this winter and is already enacting rationing. And that is not something currently being spoken about in Britain at the moment. And that's really bad news for an economy when that happens. So there are, real, there are still real problems wow. in the EU. 
So, you know, in preparing for our conversation today, I saw that a recent Oxford University study claimed that switching from fossil fuels, which is what we're talking about right now, to renewable energy, that that might save the world $12 trillion by the year 2050. So what are your thoughts on renewable energy as an alternative to fossil fuels to counter rising utility rates? Um, well, I, it's just an inevitability in my mind um, here, D. We have to do this. And this is not really an academic discussion in my mind anymore. We can't go through periods of time when we systematically look at the state of California and it seems to be on fire all the time. We can't look at the country of Pakistan and see that when the monsoons come, because of environmental damage, um, because of the greenhouse effect, that a third of the country is underwater. I find it almost incomprehensible that in the city of London, in the area of London, we are experiencing wildfires. So while one can make an economic argument for that, it chimes well with the practical reality of living, that we are experiencing extreme um, variances of, of, of climate. And these of themselves are becoming business costs. So, you know, one of the arguments, and to go back to what your question said, if we begin to wean ourselves off gas um, and oil and fossil fuels in this way, we are less vulnerable to state actors like Russia and other providers of world oil and gas who can at any particular point yank the fossil fuel chain. If we have our own mechanisms, our own um, abilities to produce green gas, then we get uh, uh, two advantages for the price of one. We get, if you like, uh, our own autonomy. Over time, we get less bills um, and we get to begin to, to go down the much needed process of stabilizing our climate, reducing those greenhouse gas emissions. It's really a win all around. Something we really should have done yesterday and not be talking about today, in my opinion. So continuing on this conversation, you know, I asked you your thoughts on renewable energy. I'm going to pose that same question to you about nuclear energy. You know, after all, nuclear energy is probably it's not probably, but it is the biggest source of clean energy here in the United States. And it produces more electricity than either solar or wind. So what are your thoughts on weaning ourselves, if you will, from fossil fuels to nuclear energy? Uh, we have an expression in Britain, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Really, you're just passing the problem on. Yeah. Um, the, the problem has always been, what do you do with your nuclear waste? In economics, they have a term. It's called an externality. Yeah. Economic activity often produces a negative output. Yeah. Uh, we can look at that in our conversation being uh, the last few hundred years. Expansive economic activity has produced lots of um, greenhouse gases, which is an, in turn affected our climate externalities. And arguably, companies should be finding ways of dealing with externalities. And traditionally, we don't do that very well, which is why we're experiencing increases in world temperature. If we go back now to the nuclear industry and think about what the externalities are there, well, for example, the externalities are... Um, uh, nuclear waste. The question becomes, what do we do with the nuclear waste? And even if we find reasonable ways of dealing with that nuclear waste, and we should be aware 
that the half-life of much of this nuclear waste can go on for many, 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 many years, okay? Um, we have the other issue of what happens when we experience, number one, accidents, think of Chernobyl. Number two, um, what do we do when we experience war? And, you know, on the back of the accident, Chernobyl was in the 1980s, but we had the Fukushima uh, uh, power plant disaster in um, Japan that saw lots of radioactive water leaking into the sea. Um, this is, again, another variant of environmental damage and risk. Do we really need to entertain that to get our power, or can we generate our power in a cleaner, safer, less risky way? And just to add to that point, let us not forget, we've got UN weapons inspectors looking at nuclear power plants in Ukraine because there were reports of Russian shelling very early on in the war that nearly created another nuclear explosion like we saw in Chernobyl. These are risks our environment can't actually afford. So the question becomes, you know, although there's the short-term practicality of generating lots of power, there is the, the practical and in some ways existential uh, risk of what do we do if we have another Chernobyl, another Fukushima? What happens if one of those stray rockets in a war detonates in a power plant and we have uh, uh, an explosion that puts irradiated dust that gets carried on the winds to far shores, even here in America. These things are possible. So lately in the news, the last few days, we've seen President Joe Biden touting the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So going back to energy costs, do you think that the Inflation Reduction Act will do anything for green energy? And again, you're coming to the, 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 the limits of my knowledge here on some of, of <laughs> this. Um, I, I, would, I would hope so. I, I haven't read enough about the Inflation Reduction Act to really give you a firm answer on that. But what I would say is this. I believe the Biden administration is on record for taking the idea and notion of greener uh, environmental activity on board. So I would hope that the act would look to, to propagate uh, some of those policies that he's saying he's following. I don't know if that's a, a, a good enough answer for you on, on that one, Dee, I'm afraid. No, that was an excellent answer. We're speaking with Anton Lewis, an associate professor of accounting at Valparaiso University. Anton, I always look forward to having you as a returning guest on Regionally Speaking because your commentary helps us to understand accounting, but also to relate accounting to breaking news. I want to pivot for just a moment to talk about what's happening in the UK right now with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, the elevation of Prince Charles to King Charles. But in particular, I wanted to take a look for a moment at her estate. I saw some numbers when I was looking at the news the other day that for me were quite staggering when, when they talked about the net worth of her estate. So if you don't mind, let's take a look at what that estate is actually worth. Well, so again, the numbers are always tricky to get to get hold of, aren't right. they? Um, I would say that directly from some of the numbers I've looked at, um, King Charles III now looks to inherit directly from the Queen somewhere around five hundred million dollars. Wait, um, say that number again. How much? Five about five hundred five hundred million. But oh. her assets that she bequeaths to him. They're around $38 billion. 
Anton, so we're having this conversation that essentially is about the cost of living crisis in the UK, the fear of a cost of living crisis here in the United States with the rising interest rates, rising inflation, high energy costs, as well as the high cost of food right now. And so you share the numbers of this massive inheritance and you contrast this massive generational wealth with commoners, if you will, in the UK who are struggling. And so I have to ask you, what are people saying? Or are they saying anything right now? Is it still new? Is it still too fresh? Does this massive generational wealth or will this massive generational wealth cause some, some upset? Well, at the minute, not yet. But that is a conversation delayed. You must understand that, and, and as I've left my home country, I see it perhaps clearer, um, Britain is a place of form and formality. Right, right. When the monarch passes, everything stops. We do what needs to be done, irrespective of whatever that cost may be. And then we move on. But when we move on, this conversation that to be had is going to be very severe. So just to give you an example of what I mean, and this is before we actually count what the cost of the royal funeral is going to be. I looked into some numbers here. And... You must appreciate that the royal family's ability to be royal is funded by the state. And the British people pay taxes, pay, pay the state taxes to enable this. And the royal family get what, they, what is called a sovereign grant of something like £86.3 million. And this was in 2021. They also get um, money to uh, make sure there are property uh, repairs, and bear in mind, this is annually, of something like £63 million uh, uh, um, pounds in maintenance. Wow. And then they have a budget of £4.5 million just for royal travel. And in those three core items, that comes to somewhere more or less around £154 million pounds in one year. And that was for 2021 when the Queen was alive. I've been looking into just what, what maybe might be the cost of this funeral and from what I can get hold of and the numbers are really really sketchy they're hard to, to really pin down it could be anywhere just for the funeral itself from five million to eleven million pounds now let me take you back to the conversation we've just had about how things difficult how difficult things are here in the US and then maybe double it or triple it to how bad things are in the UK right now with rising energy costs rising inflation we've you know, got rising a uh, 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 crisis, uh, 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 crisis in the cost of living in Britain, and all the while we're looking at a price tag for a monarchy that is increasing. As you mentioned, we are looking at the head of the country when all of the country is suffering, gaining thirty-eight billion dollars in assets and directly, arguably five hundred million conservatively, and it could possibly be much more. His son, as he moves from being Prince William to the Prince of Wales and takes over his father's Duchy of Cornwall estate, becomes a billionaire because the value of that estate is $1 billion, right? And this is very wow. difficult for a monarchy to be able to justify itself when once people are suffering. And the last comment I will make is that the number I mentioned of $500 million uh, uh, that, that is, that is uh, obtained, um, that potentially may be untaxed. Now, you must be aware 
that it was only in 1990s when Queen Elizabeth uh, herself uh, uh, voluntarily decided to pay taxes on her estate and her economic activity. She did that voluntarily, but that was her decision. Unless King Charles III says that he's also going to follow in his mother's footsteps, he's not actually mandated to pay tax as the the monarch himself. His children, yes, but the, the monarch, yeah, is not necessarily entitled to pay those taxes. I don't know the exact ins and outs and details, but that I think that's the state of play as it sits. Could be just it's me, but that's so hard for us to wrap our minds around as Americans. You know what I mean? You you have income as an American and you pay taxes. And so it's so difficult for us to even understand that large inheritance, but then to, to understand an inheritance, a net worth that will be so great, and, and but you have to volunteer to pay those taxes on that that is mind-blowing to me right now especially as we continue this conversation about so many suffering right now so many struggling to even buy a loaf of bread and and for you to share with us that the now king charles will it will be up to him to to volunteer to pay taxes on such vast wealth that is quite hard for me to wrap my mind around and i i should be really clear here it's degrees isn't it yeah He's most likely going to pay the tax, right? It's a near certainty that's going to happen and be replicated because there will be such outrage if that tax is not paid that it may potentially destabilize the monarchy, which means we'd rather be a republic. We'd rather, you know, not have a monarchy as our head. Uh, And before you say that can never happen in Britain, if we go right back to the death of Princess Diana, um, that was on the tables. Now, I was in Britain at that time as a younger man, and there were open conversations across the country that basically said, if the Queen can't come and celebrate the death of the Princess of the People, Princess Diana, then why do we need them? And so you must always understand, and again, I guess I'm going off the tangent, but I'm giving, I'm perhaps talking less as the professor now, and more as uh, uh, a, a British subject, yeah? But that's um, great. How many opportunities the, yeah. do we have here in Northwest Indiana to ah. speak with a British <laughs> subject? So this is, this is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and so I, I will say there is always, the position of the monarchy is a lot more unstable than you think. Because at any one time, the public can turn around and say, we don't want to pay all that money for your lifestyle. Why should you have all the luxury and we have nothing? There has to be a really firm argument for why that is the case. And that question was asked in the mid-90s when um, Diana, Princess, uh, uh, Princess Diana, she passed. Um, that question can always be asked again. Now, as it happens... Um, it is not being asked in any meaningful way right now that I understand it, because Charles is, I think, a very popular king, and the entire nation is behind him. And we must understand that in times of great harm, um, to have a monarchy can be an incredibly wonderful, useful thing in terms of rallying support for the nation. Uh, If we go back even further, to give you an example, during the Second World War, the royal family stayed while London, London was being bombed. That had incalculable effects at supporting the morale of the United Kingdom as it fought against Germany in the likes of the Battle of Britain. They stayed. And although we're not directly at war, 
this way, the way that the monarchy uh, and um, I believe um, King Charles III, the way that the royal family reacts to the cost of living crisis will over time dictate the solidity of their monarchy going forward. This is their great challenge now. I mean, how can one, how can it be, as you say, Dee, how can it be tenable to have such great wealth combined to such great suffering of one's people? How do you reconcile that? And I thank you for taking a moment to share your thoughts on what's happening in your home country, Britain, right now, what's happening with the monarchy, but also your thoughts on what's happening with the cost of living crisis in the UK. So shifting from that conversation, as well as our conversation on energy, in addition to your work as an associate professor of accounting at Valparaiso University, where you are dedicated to researching and promoting equitable racial representation in accounting, you are also the host of the podcast, Counting Black and White Beans, And I know you wanted to spend some of our time together today discussing working your identity in the workplace. And I'm glad that you wanted to talk about this because I recently engaged in what I would call a sort of spirited debate with my husband recently about the retelling of an experience that one of our friends had at work. And it involved one word in particular that was used to describe an African-American colleague by his male superior. And when I say this word, you'll probably know where I'm going with this. So back to this conversation that I was having with my husband about our friend who is an African-American male. It was a performance review that he was undergoing his superior. And in that performance review, the, the superior recently shared that he believed that the subordinate was highly motivated, an excellent worker. But he said on a number of occasions within this review that he was quite articulate. And our friend said that the superior said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, that he was able to successfully string together a number of sentences using quote unquote big words. So going back to this conversation, that word articulate, it's a bit of a trigger for us. And when I say us, I mean African-Americans. And I'm sure you've heard it a time or two because you are a black male in America. You have this very distinctive British accent. So in this debate that I'm having with my husband about the retelling of the story, He stopped me mid-sentence and he said something to me that kind of stopped me where I stood. He said to me that that we should look at the use of the word articulate from another lens and that perhaps the word articulate was really and truly meant to be used as a compliment. So my question to you is, in the research and the work that you do, are we too sensitive to what many in the African-American community would perceive as a microaggression? It's interesting, isn't it? Um... For me, it's it's clearly microaggressive. And the reason I take that stance is if we didn't have the history that we have, I might entertain the idea that you can just talk to anybody and say that they are articulate. Or um, you can say, uh, for example, that you're surprisingly bright. But unfortunately, we don't live in that universe. In our universe with our history, particularly here in the United States, we have one which has um, been replete um, with the subjugation of uh, many races, particularly African-Americans. And part of this subjugation have been stereotypes that African-Americans, for example, uh, are not particularly bright, clever, 
intelligent and therefore articulate, very good at running and catching uh, uh, spherical objects, but no, not very good, for example, at uh, particularly academic pursuits. And within that ground, if you like, um, that African-American professionals work within, words such as articulate or you manage to string together a few words well are not seen in a meritocratic and fair manner. They become codes to say you're an outlier, but because you're an outlier, I actually think the majority of your people are actually inarticulate Absolutely. and actually can barely string questions together. And on top of that, we must not forget that in the uh, scenario you described, Dee, we talk about power dynamics. Is this appropriate for your senior to really be alluding to these matters? One could argue it's just a lack of cultural intelligence, but it should be, it should be known that in a leadership position, one must be sensitive to the needs of uh, one's fellow colleagues that you're reviewing. So to my mind, there are some questions and queries here, but, and, and that's where I stand. But to be fair, I believe your husband has a really interesting point because in many ways, this overreaction is also part of the wokeness in our society that many are rebelling against, whatever the term wokeness might be. And this idea that there is a fragility around anything and everything, and we must tiptoe for want of insulting. And that's constraining the quality of life that we live in general, and particularly makes um, doing one's professional job more difficult in the workplace. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm as we say in Britain, uh, playing devil's advocate there, taking the oppositional viewpoint. Um, but I actually truly believe that that was clearly microaggressive, which is my own personal stance. And, you know, um, as we move into this conversation of uh, working one's identity in, in, in the workplace, you know, let me pose the scenario that the young uh, the black professional being reviewed uh, uh, in this in this instance actually hit every single mark. He hit his marker so well that the only reference that could be made to compliment him was a microaggression. Right. So even when he does everything that could be expected in terms of appearance, in terms of um, his ability to charm and be um, acceptable within the workplace to get on well with colleagues, to do an excellent job in your, your, your work, you can still be attacked in that subtle kind of way. So even though there is agency in working one, one's um, identity to, to make sure you wear the right suit, to have the right haircut, to speak in the right manner, one is still vulnerable to the vagaries of hidden racism lurking around. So you, you just hit on something. One of the last things that you said was, you know, wearing the, the right haircut or getting the right haircut. So we've met in person many, many times now, right? And I'm certain that every time that you've seen me, I've had braids in my hair. I wear them with pride. But I remember a time when I worked in corporate America in downtown Chicago when I could not wear this hairstyle. I had to burn my hair, if you will, with chemicals and wear my hair straightened and, and kind of fit in. 
in. So going back into this conversation about working your identity at work and assimilating to the quote unquote white and male cultural norms, I think about how far we've come, right? Like I've shared, you know, I'm able to to, to wear braids and, and it sounds almost strange or incomprehensible to even say that, oh, yeah, I'm wearing braids. But the truth of the matter is, it has not been that long since I have not been able to do that. But I also don't think that we have come that far. Do you, would you agree? I, I do. Um, in some ways, a phrase that some friends and I use together, uh, you concede a little to get a lot, right? Um, right? Maybe we concede the braids and the hairstyle but what do we get? We still get the reality of not enough black people in professional spaces. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, when we talk about this, we must, you know, uh, look at the black woman experience as being actually distinctly different from the black male professional experience in the scenario you've just described. At the intersection of race and gender, there is the reality that the black woman must watch the, uh, the hairstyle that she wears, uh, the, appropriate, the appropriateness of her deportment, what she wears, is it a suit, is it a pantsuit, what image is being projected, is it too masculine, is it, too, uh, 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 um, uh, is it not feminine enough, um, is, um, for example, um, her ability to interrupt for, uh, 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 too much seen as being too aggressive absolutely um when in fact if it had been a dominant majority white male he was just being passionate and assertive and all of these um issues um combine not just on a racialized front but on a gendered front to ultimately mean that many of our black women professionals actually walk a tightrope a, tight, a professional tightrope that if they're not careful, get it wrong, you fall off and you, you professionally plummet or if not plummet, stagnate at a particular level. You can't climb up. One is constantly being judged. And by definition, then, if you are, if uh, black women professionals are monitoring themselves, by definition, they are hyper visibly being monitored as well by the professional workplace. Yeah. And so although there have been concessions with the braid, how many, how many professional women do we see on Wall, uh, Wall Street um, readily sporting an Afro? We actually still don't see that many big Afros around anymore. That's yeah? true. Yeah. And if we were going to be, and it goes back to my original point about meritocracy, if we're truly the meritocratic places we wish to be, then it shouldn't matter what you wear, actually, because the merit is in the work that you do. And by definition, if it matters, then it is not meritocratic. And we have work to do to get there. And so what does this mean in terms of working one's identity? It means self-policing. It means living a dual persona where one is acceptable, read, matching white professional cultural norms at work through speech, through clothing, through acts. And when one comes home, one has a sigh of relief and goes back to how one wants to be and is at ease wearing one's own clothing, eating one's own food that is culturally appropriate. Um, and it, it, it allows a kind of relaxation. But here's the problem with that, Dee. Mm -hmm. um, that means that for people of colour, and particularly 
black people and, 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 and black women professionals, there is what we call a dissonance, a separation of two worlds that are combined but forever at oppositional places. And it can lead to a great deal of psychic stress. It's something one has to think about constantly, every day, every minute, every second. We often have the term, I, uh, my mother-in-law used to use, um, you will find that many um, black professionals will wear suits as a body of armor because it displays to the world that I am professional. I am not the stereotype that you automatically attach to me. I am different and need to be treated in that way and with the respect. And with that, that is a form of working identity. And the issue here is if you're a dominant majority white male, straight you don't have to do that you never think of that right you just don't and in that way by definition the workplace is fitted for them not for anybody else you hit on this a bit but i just want to jump in for a second just to ask you this one question okay so why is identity so important in the workplace identity is important in the workplace d because for good or bad to be successful you must fit an archetype of what success looks like, okay? So you could choose to wear um, culturally inappropriate clothing, right? You could choose to speak in slang. You could choose to, um, uh, uh, if you like, uh, rebel uh, against wearing suit and just wear shorts all the time but you won't get promoted. You will be seen as being the outsider. You won't get the great jobs or the great work assignments. And your ability to progress to the highest echelons, the C-suite or the CEO, the CFO positions, they are not going to be available for you. So to do that, part of working identity is in essence to say, I'm okay, I belong in the professional club. I deserve as, as much as a chance as anybody else at getting the professional goodies as I work through my career. And so how one presents one's identity is vitally important, always has been, yeah? And as much as I talk about people of color um, and black men, professional men and black professional women, this is true of white women as well, let us not forget, right? right. Whereas the hemline too short or, you know, um, the um, culturally inappropriate um, uh, a haircut can also stymie them, yeah? And we don't see the representation of people of color, all white women, in the highest C-suite positions that we should still, even after all the DEI work that has been done. And so everybody in some way, apart, I would argue, the actual archetype, which is the, um, uh, for want of a better word, um, male, white, middle to upper class, straight professional, right? Able-bodied. That tends to be the archetype that everybody who isn't that has to conform to. They have to work their identity. They must massage their identity to be an approximation of that because that is the archetype of the field. That is who, on the whole, clients want to see. That is who, on the whole, the C-suite wants to uh, push forward into positions of power. And it is about trying, if you're in the professional game, if you're in the game of work, to try to get on and succeed. 
So to rebel and not work one's identity is actually an act of career self-harm. But should it? Mm -hmm. I mean, shouldn't we just be able to be ourselves? Anton, whenever I speak with you, I always feel like I'm a student in your class, and and I'm I, sorry, Dee. No, but it's 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 a good it's a good thing. I always feel like I'm a student in your class, and as you're talking, I'm always nodding along with you, and I'm always taking notes. So, so in the minute or so that we have left. If, if we were in your classroom right now, we, you've, you've unpacked a lot of great information. And I know what happens. It's been a while since I've been in, in, in school. But I know what always happens at the end of class is that the professor always says, OK, class, great lesson. Here's your homework assignment. So if you had to give our listening audience right now a homework assignment, be it about the information that you've shared with us today or the conversation that we've had today, what would that homework assignment be? Oof. Um, I think in terms of our discussion about the cost of living crisis, both in the United States and the United Kingdom, I would say homework, keep watching and keep your powder dry. That is to say, um, you know, we're probably going to experience rougher times uh, soon. The very act of the Bank of England and the uh, Fed to increase interest rates will probably provoke us into a recession. That's probably coming if we're not arguably already or in it already, given the high price, uh, costs of, of living both in the US and the EU, UK. In terms of the royal family, the homework would be watch the TV, you know, mm -hmm. look at what's happening. Look at how the royal family handles what's coming next. And the big challenge is going to be for them. How do they explain to the British people that, They've got all this wealth. And even though they are in grieving, and I would not wish any harm upon our monarchy in, in that regard, how do our monarchy reconcile their great wealth with the scarcity of wealth with the vast majority of people within our country? And thirdly, in terms of working one's identity, have a look at those who succeed. If you really are committed to getting to the top of your organization, you actually need to know how the game is played in that organization. And part of playing that game isn't just having the right qualifications. It's not just about doing the greatest work. It's about looking the part, acting the part, being the part. So people don't query who you are, even though you're an outsider professional. They give you the benefit of the doubt that is often not afforded to those who are stigmatized others. Anton Lewis is an Associate Professor of Accounting at Valparaiso University. Dr. Lewis is dedicated to researching and promoting equitable racial representation in accounting. Anton is a frequent contributor with the CPA Journal and is the author of the book, Counting Black and White Beans. He's also the host of the podcast with the same name. Anton, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. It's an absolute pleasure, Dee. Thank you for having me on. I always love talking to you and love talking to issues that you bring up with yourself and your audience. Thank you. And that's it for our show today. Thanks to our guest from NIPSCO, Alexius Barber, who is the Public Affairs and Economic Development Manager, as well as to Professor of Accounting Anton Lewis from Valparaiso University. And coming up tomorrow, we'll have David Wright from the Gary Public Transportation Corporation. He is excited to share all of the new information about service expansion, major updates, including information on the electric bus program. And we'll be back with you tomorrow.